remain seated for the passage tonight. It's long, and I know it's long. Uh, we're going to put on our big boy pants and big girl pants, and I'm going to trust your literacy that you can understand this. And uh, we will get through it, and it'll make sense as much as we can make of it. But this is from some selections, Revelation 6 and 7. We're not going to cover everything because John Roberts is going to be preaching after spring break uh, on a similar topic in the next chapter. This is the word of the Lord. This is John speaking just after he sees the Lamb on the throne in the Oval Office. John says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, the ones we've been talking about the past three weeks, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice that was like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a, had a pair of scales in his hand, measuring scales. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, or a day's wage, and three quarts of barley for a day's wage. But don't harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades, or the place of the dead, followed him. Or the grave followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These saints, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. We're skipping ahead to chapter 7. After this, I looked, I, John, looked, and behold, a great multitude that, was, that, was, that no one could number. And it was from every nation, from all the tribes, the peoples, the languages. And they were standing there before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in those white robes. They had palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And one of the elders addressed me, and he said, Who are these? Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know, or, or Sir, surely you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, 
nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Why don't we pray together? Lord Jesus, we ask that even tonight, even in these next few minutes, you would send your Spirit, that we might see you as you are, that he might enable us to understand what you're, what you're revealing to us, Lord. This has relevance for us tonight. We know this is your fresh word. Your word is never stale. It's never crusty. It's never been left out in the sun and spoiled. It is only ever fresh, only ever meets us where we are and with what we need. I need it. All my friends need it. We need to hear from our shepherd. We need to hear from you. And you love to speak to us, so would you come, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. That is a long passage, and it's filled with uh, a lot of complicated things that I'm going to let John Robert explain in two weeks. And so, (laughs) a tall order for a long passage. Where do we start? How do we get through this? As we think about all these things, famine, pestilence, war, God, in a sense, it seems like he's the one sending out these things into the world, unleashing these things into the world, these powers that are hurting the people of God. I think we start here, start down to earth. The very first question that anybody asks after some massive tragedy or natural disaster happens is why? After the killer's been handcuffed or the shooter has been taken down or the tornado has gone and the people are coming out of their homes, that's when everybody shifts to ask the question, why or how? How did this happen? Why did this happen? It happens after San Bernardino when all those people were massacred. It happened after Orlando. It was just hours after the Pulse nightclub shooting. Everybody in the country is saying, why? Trying to make sense of it. The girl up in Albuquerque last fall, the 10-year-old, who was raped and murdered by her her meth addict mother's boyfriend while her mother watched. Everybody is asking, how? Why? And the media goes and they dig and they dig and they dig and they dig trying to find out motivations, background. Did, they, did something just flip in their brain? They went insane? What happened? We ask the same questions when it's closer to home. You have a friend who gets in an accident. You've heard of a high school friend who's died. What's the very first question you ask your friend? How did it happen? Why? Now, here's the thing. Like, when we get the answers, when we get some answers to why... It's not like any of that information undoes the tragedy or brings back the people who've died. And we know that. When you ask about your high school friend, how did it happen? You know that getting answers to those questions or why did this child get abused, it's not going to undo the damage. But why do we ask? Why do we want to know? And why is that information somewhat helpful? I think the reason why is because you're made in the image of a God who has, who has made his world, made you just like him, and you refuse to live in a world where suffering is meaningless. You cannot live in a world where evil is random and out of control. You can say it, 
You can say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe there's any God, I don't believe there's any moral absolutes. It's just fate running its course. But your emotions, your conscience catch up to you. They betray you when tragedy comes to your doorstep, right? You demand an answer to why. You ask the question why too, even though your own worldview would suggest there's no answer to it. Because you refuse to live in a world where chance is God, where chaos is God. I think that's universal. So is the presence of suffering. It's the first point, three points in your bulletin. The first point is that suffering is unavoidable. This pushes back against some ideas that probably lurk pretty deep down in all of our hearts, no matter where you're at, no matter how mature you are, immature you are. And it's, just, it's a theology that says something like this. If I am kind of coloring inside of the lines, being a good person, and it could even be good stuff, if I'm pursuing the Lord, if I'm praying, if I'm clinging to Jesus in all the ways we've been talking about, if I'm resting in Him, then these kind of tragedies will not come to me. And it's a theology that says, like, I can pray away chaos ambushing me the way I see it ambushing my friends or people in the news. I can, I can kind of put up a hedge around me through my prayers. And it's basically like if I'm a good enough person, um, God will play ball with me and these things won't come to me. And it's not true. Because this kind of suffering, these kind of, these kind of tragedies are so much bigger than you and me. We're a tiny stitch in an enormous tapestry of God working in every detail of history to bring honor to himself, to protect his people, to lift up Jesus, to make his world good again, and to make everything that's sad come untrue. We're a little stitch in a really big tapestry. And so it's not just about all of these little people praying that we would avoid tragedy and we're inoculated against it. Much deeper reasons why we're not inoculated against it we'll talk about in a minute. But at the very least, we have to realize the fact that you experience suffering, that you experience tragedy and chaos, doesn't necessarily mean God's mad at you or He's trying to punish you or, or push you down with His thumb. Suffering is normal in the sense that it's par for the course with His people. Par for the course of Jesus himself. He's known as the man of sorrows. Did suffering seemingly ambush him? Did tragedy, did the, did the ripple of tragedy wash up on his shore too? You bet. Almost daily, if not daily. And climactically, in a way that's much bigger with us, these things are normal for us. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray against those things. I pray every night that God will protect Eli and Addie and the little boy in Anna's womb and that it will protect Anna. And I should. It's because I love them. But when tragedy comes to my home, when tragedy comes into my life, the first place my mind should go is not, is God punishing me? Is He mad at me? Is this abnormal? Am I a freak? Why is this happening to me? Friends, there are forces unleashed in this world and there are purposes behind those forces so much bigger than me and my individual story. You are network. You are stitched into a bigger fabric. And so when a piece of fabric 10 miles away from you gets pulled, you feel the pull. Suffering, tragedy is unavoidable. And it comes to all of us. This tide will wash up on your shore in one way or another. And Jesus knows it will. He knows the pattern of your life will take the shape of His life. 
And so he protects his people. He warns you. And he puts it in context. How do we get context about this? How do we, how do, you know we said the first week, like in order to understand where you are, you have to be taken out of where you are. In order to understand American culture, you've got to go study abroad. You're like, oh, we Americans are weird. In order to realize how toxic the relationship you're in, you've got to get out of it. Why was I ever dating that person? God says in order to understand your world, he has to lift you out of it. That's what Revelation's about, pulling back the curtains, revealing what's right before our eyes. This is a passage that's not revealing like millennia into the future when the day of judgment comes. And it's not stuff that's stuck in the first century. John, Jesus, is describing our world on March 14, 2017. The forces, the dynamics, the systemic injustices that are raging all around us. He is, he is giving sense. He is putting context, putting purpose behind the stuff that seems like pandemonium and chaos in our lives. So we look at, back at the passage. We look at these four horsemen. And we start asking ourselves, what is going on with these things? There's a little bit of context here. This is John is kind of borrowing imagery and pulling back from a prophecy in Zechariah where these four horsemen go out bringing in a sense kind of the judgment of God for rebellion on the world. And John's describing our world. He talks about it this way. He says, the very first horse, he said, I look and I, he said, look and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Let's talk real quick about what these horses symbolize. This is visual theology, not a lecture. What does the white horse mean? What does the crown, the bow, the conquering, what does this all mean for us? How does this reinforce this point that suffering uh, is unavoidable uh, for us? This white horse, is. John is saying, Jesus is saying that God is... Unle- like, from the day, at, the day of the fall... There are forces that were unleashed in that event, forces that are consequences of evil, forces that are judgments over evil, one of which is this white horse. It's this continual seesaw effect of nation conquering nation, this continual turf war of who has the power. And it's always a turf war at the end of a barrel, always a turf war at the end of a gun or the end of a sword. He's saying these kings, they're given a crown, they're given a bow, they're constantly at war with each other. Constantly fighting, constantly taking. Imagine the chaos that has reigned because of the changing superpowers in human history. You've taken some world history. You know who they all are. None of them are on the top of the totem pole anymore. At best, they're tourist stops. America will be one of those too. He's saying that is chaos. The implications of this, that the nations are warring against the nations, that we're always insecure, always launching a defense, always guarding ourselves, brings in great suffering into the world. We have tried to avoid it. We human beings, even we Christians, we have tried to avoid it even though it's unavoidable. Even though it's a force and a dynamic so much bigger than us, we have tried to avoid it. We created the League of Nations. A few years later, the worst war, perhaps, in human history happened. Then we created the United Nations. Years after that, it was one long series of wars every three or four years that goes all the way up until today. Wars we're still fighting. We have tried to eradicate these forces, tried to push them back through peace treaties, through alliances, through giant defense spending, and we can't. 
is so much bigger than this. This horse still rides. You see it in the news every day, nation against nation. John says, I looked up and there was a second horse. The one on the throne opened the second seal and it was a red horse, red the color of bloodshed. And he's saying, this rider was permitted, was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. First horse, you're looking at this macro level of nation warring against nation. Now it zooms down into more of a micro level. There's violence. To be human is to be at war. To be human is to be in a fight much bigger than you. It's tribe against tribe. It's race against race. It's economic class against economic class. And the people with the power oppress those who don't have the power. You can't legislate your way out of that. You can't pass laws to try to regulate your way out of that. Humanism can't get you out of that. Those little NBC, these old school NBC, the more you know ads, the public service announcements can't wean this out of us. It's a force much bigger than us. We're a stitch in a great tapestry, and this power is loosed onto the world. There's third horse. John looks, he says it's a black rider. This is the one that's a little bit weirder. He says this rider is holding a scale, like the old school measuring scales. And there's this weird stuff about a, a bushel of wheat for a denarius, but don't touch the oil and the wine. He's talking about, he, he's, basically he's talking about economic oppression. He's talking about the poor getting poorer and the rich getting richer. Uh, he's, t- he's talking about greed. He's talking about corruption and evil infiltrating economic systems at a grand scale. There will always be money for those who can afford wine and oil to buy more wine and oil, but those to buy a simple day's meal can't get it. This black horse has been unleashed. We've tried to avoid that too. The way we've tried to avoid that is fair trade movements. You see it on your coffee, responsibly sourced coffee beans, World Trade Organization, free trade agreements, all these kind of things. We're trying to push back the evil, put the genie back in the bottle. And it can't be done because these forces are so much bigger than we are. And the last horse, perhaps the worst horse, this pale, sickly horse that he says is named Death, and the grave or Hades follows after it, saying the biggest enemy of God, the prime expression of evil and darkness in God's creation is death, the undoing of creation, the ultimate chaos, the ultimate screw-up of that which is good and beautiful. And we have tried to avoid this too. Modern man creates technology to avoid it, and we can't. We turn to euthanasia to avoid it, and we can't. We turn to cures and vaccines, and we can't. Those things certainly, some of those things certainly help. Some of those are outright evil. But at the end of the day, in 2017, with all the technology we have, there is a 100% mortality rate for being a human being. Everybody dies. And at the end of the day, if you're dead, what did the technology mean? 
with the first horse, with the second horse, with the third horse, with the fourth horse. Humanity has arranged ourselves trying to avoid these sufferings, trying to put the genie back in the bottle, trying to kill these horsemen, these symbolic horsemen, these forces let loose in the world, to put the pandemonium away, to avoid it. We do it theologically, we do it spiritually. We say if you're on God's team, prosperity is yours. You'll never get sick, you'll be rich. You'll be emotionally stable. Everything will be great. Do you see how we desperately try to avoid this stuff? We try to inoculate ourselves against it. And we can't. These things still wash up on our shore. Suffering is unavoidable for the people of God. We'll talk in just a second about the fifth seal and the saints. Did they get impacted by this suffering? Oh my gosh, you bet. He says they're the martyrs. They're the ones who have been martyred. Their lives have been taken. And they're sitting under the throne of God Himself in the altar right before the living God, saying, How long, O Lord, till you avenge our deaths and bring justice? Look, suffering is unavoidable because there is a clash of kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom has invaded this world. And it has established beachheads everywhere. And he is subduing piece by piece that which is his. And he's remaking it. But you had better believe there's a fight. You had better believe there's resistance because what happened when the king himself came into the world? Very first night on earth, he has a king, Herod, ordering a genocide of all two-year-old boys to eliminate the threat. He's a refugee in Egypt. And then when he gets older, it doesn't get much better because then the religious establishment is trying to murder him and eventually succeeds in that. There is, there is resistance. There is a collision of kingdoms. And it is bigger than you, brothers and sisters. And so it's not just about praying away the ripple effects and the whiplash from these collisions. Because we're in a story so much bigger than us and we've got to grasp that humbly if we're going to understand our suffering and turn to the Lord in the midst of it. The second point is that um, not just the suffering is unavoidable, but the suffering is out of our control and under God's. I think we've established it's out of our control, right? We can't immunize ourselves against it. Suffering is not under our control but it is under God's control. Look at these verses through here. Did you notice them? I emphasized them. These, these, these passive verbs or these words of permission. He says in verse 2, I looked and behold a white horse, its rider had a bow, and what happened? The crown was given to him. It happens with the other horse too. Bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Happens down in verse 8 as well with, the, uh, with, with death and Hades. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. Remember, Jesus is the one pulling off these seals as well. It's the four creatures that are instigating these riders uh, going out. Which cre- seems to create a big problem for God. Because I just said suffering is not under your control, but it is under God's. And so the question that comes up, if you're paying attention, is doesn't that put him on the hook? Doesn't that, doesn't that in a sense, make God sound bad or evil? What's he up to? The saints themselves in heaven are saying, how long, O Lord? 
Job was wondering how God was faithful to his covenant because of the stuff that was happening with him. The Israelites wondered if God was a truth teller or a liar because of the stuff that was happening to them in the desert. Throughout Scripture, you see God's people, the psalmists, saying, Why did the wicked prosper, Lord? Why? Jeremiah asked, God, are you deceiving me? The Bible gives permission to ask the question, so long as it's to God, and not to the air. And so long it does not have the tone of satanic accusation, you are evil. But God totally permits the question, totally welcomes the question. God, what are you doing? How long? Why does it seem like you're losing? Why does it seem like your church is losing ground? Why does it seem like Christianity is on the decline? Why, Jesus, if you're king, if you're in the Oval Office, why did this happen to my family? The question is welcomed. So long as the devil is not the one who put it in your ear. You are evil. What are you doing? But you are absolutely allowed to ask, what are you doing, God? This very passage shows God's people asking that question. Now, I wanted to do this very quickly, and this is an invitation to let's hang out later this week or in two weeks when you get back from break to talk about problem of evil stuff. That's not what this passage is about, but it comes up. And it's how many of you will encounter this kind of stuff. Is God evil because he permits evil? The argument goes like this. Troy and I were talking about this the other day from this philosophy class. The argument goes like this. If God is all-powerful, he could stop evil, but clearly hasn't. And so he's not good. He's not God. Or God is all good. And so he would want to stop evil, right? But he hasn't. And so he's not God. He's not good or he's not powerful. I want you to zoom out and ask yourself, what does that argument presume? That argument presumes omniscience. Because for us to say evil is pointless, it's arbitrary, it's cruel, it's purposeless, it's pandemonium, means that you know everything. You see everything. Not just like you read a book on philosophical problems with God or whatever, and you know that book. I'm talking you know every single thing in the cosmos, in the universe, every dimension of reality. You know how many dimensions of reality there are. You know everything that's seen and unseen, everything that humans have discovered and the stuff humans haven't discovered. You know the things that have been revealed, the things that are still concealed. You see through every lie, every delusion, every twist of truth. You know everything. That's the only way you can make that argument. That the evil that God has allowed to operate in his creation is pointless and therefore he is bad or he's powerless or he doesn't exist. It presumes omniscience. And so in order to kind of explain away, like in, it's like you take God off his throne by putting yourself on the throne. You assume divine status. I know everything, and I hereby declare that God has no reasons, no bigger picture, no redemptive purposes for allowing what he allows in this world. And you can't do that. Philosophical journals are the ones who say that this argument against God is intellectually bankrupt. That's not me saying that. You go read academic journals, and they say this stuff holds no water. And I don't say that flippantly. I say it because, do you understand, you have to make yourself God to be able to deny God. Or you make evil God. Because you say evil evil's just out there doing its thing. It's a random fate. It has no purpose. 
You say evil has no beginning, it has no end. It's sovereign, it's supreme, it calls all the shots, it gets the last word. Well, what have you put up on the throne of divinity now? Eternal, self-existent, supreme, sovereign evil. You create more problems than you fix. When you look at an evil, confusing world and say, God can't be good or powerful because he's allowing this, you either divinize evil or you make yourself God, creating far more problems than you set out to fix. So how do we, how do we address this? What do we say? Is God off the hook now because, oh, wow, that was cool. He's off the hook in a sense that he's righteous and good and pure and he loves his people and he's just and he's fair. But there's a sense in which our hearts still ache. And God's people ask him the question, where are you? Jesus is quoting a psalm on the cross that had already been prayed and sung and spoken hundreds of years before. Why have you forsaken me? Is God off the hook? I want to suggest to you that we have to let God tell us what he's doing with seemingly chaos, with the seemingly chaotic evil and pandemonium and suffering in his world. You can't trust your own perceptions, your own conclusions that, man, this has no meaning. This is going to have no good outcome to it. You have to let God do that. And we'll end in a second tonight with seeing that he does just that. Think about this illustration. Let's say you're a medically trained person and you're in someone's house and you see a little vial of something that says botulinum toxin on it. And you see this other person putting a syringe in it and sucking it out and walking over to one of your friends. And because you're a medically trained person, you know that botulinum toxin is one of the most toxic substances on earth. Botulism's killed millions through the years. And you start to freak out. Why are you going to kill them? Run! And you push your friend away, and you look at this person like, why are you evil? Why are you going to murder them? Botulinum toxin is the active ingredient in Botox, which isn't just used to kind of make our lips more plump and make us look younger. Botox is used to relieve migraine headaches. It's used to relieve spasms and Parkinson's muscle tremors. It's given to correct cross-eyedness. has 800 patents for Botox. 800 patented medical uses for the most toxic substance on planet Earth. Something that even until recently we would look at and say, that is simply bad. It's death. It's chaos. It has no purpose. That doctor was using that medicine, that toxin, for a good end, for a good outcome. And we see that even in these things. Now let's bring this down to the personal level and then we end with the last point. What does this mean in our lives? What does it mean when you taste and experience things in your life that taste like poison, that taste bitter, that are like uh, Abide With Me? That song gives voice to things like bitterness and death stinging and the grave and foes and ills. What could ever make tears lose their bitterness? What could ever make foes producing no fear in you? What could ever take the weight and the impact away from ills? What could take the sting away from death? What could do these things? By knowing God's purpose and allowing things that confuse you 
and do not make sense to you. John Newton, uh, my buddy Matt Howell, um, was helpful in me kind of getting connected to this quote. John Newton, writer of Amazing Grace, said that for the Christian, everything that God sends to you is needful. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds from you. The things you think you have to have to be okay, if God has not given them to you, they are not necessary for you to be okay. The things you think you cannot bear, just outright evil that keeps pounding at you and poking you and sticking at you, you are needful of in some mysterious way. And I don't know if it's one of those things where you got through it and you're like, now, man, that was the hardest time of my life, but I grew so much. You might go to your grave never knowing why. Why he allowed that pain. Why that evil washed up on your shore. But faith is trusting the heart of your Father and knowing without a doubt that He is good, that He is for His people, that He is faithful to His Word. I quoted this before. You know that the father, the Syrian refugee father who is fleeing the civil war in Syria, getting to the Mediterranean, trying to send his kids to safe passage in Greece where they'll survive. There's not room for parents and children. Only kids go. Poet saw that video and wrote a poem about it. He said, You have to understand that no one puts their child on a boat unless the water is safer than the land. God will not allow the things that have happened to you to happen unless the suffering is safer than the comfort, unless the trial is more fruitful in your life than the lack of the trial. Friends, we are in the deep waters of the gospel now. This is when you know your God and you know what He's like and you know that He's for you because you saw in the throne room the Lamb with the slit throat offered to ransom you for this God. And you say, he gave the lamb, he gave his son for me. How could he be against me? How could he be against me? He who did not spare his own son, how could he give us not all things that we're needful of? That's the arithmetic that faith in Jesus does when trial and evil and darkness comes upon you. Litany of reasons why God allows suffering and evil in His people's lives sometimes. Sometimes it's to judge the world. He will not be mocked. Part of the reason suffering happens in our lives is in the neighborhood all around us, in the world all around us. Judgment is coming around the world. Part of it is to spread His church. Did you know Jesus told His church to go into all the world and make disciples? Did you know His church did not go into all the world and make disciples? Until God in His brilliance brought persecution to the church in Jerusalem and they had to flee at the end of a spear for their lives? That's how the church got out of Jerusalem. Not because they were super passionate for Jesus. They were terrified. And he did that all the way up through Turkey and Europe and over to America. It was religious persecution. That's why the pilgrims came here. It's religious persecution that the church is on fire spreading through China right now. 
Could it be God has bigger purposes than you and I are able to, able to perceive? God will bring suffering into our lives to wean you from the world, love of the world, and to protect you from it. He will discipline us and chasten us from time to time when we need it, when we need to be woken up. He will bring this and allow it to wash up on our shore to increase our thirst for His kingdom. He will do it to demonstrate through you to the world that He is enough. That's what He did in Job. devil said, Job just likes you because you're nice to him. God said, no, no, no. Job loves me because I've showed myself to Job. I gave him grace to see me. devil says, I... Uh, put your money where your mouth is, God. Take away his presence and he'll curse you. And God takes it away. He eventually restores it, but he takes it away for the world to see. I am good enough, lovely enough, worthy enough, beautiful enough to be loved just for who I am, not because of the presence I give my people. Myriad other reasons, friends, of why God allows these hardships to come into our lives. The last point is this, and it's a story about Eli Wiesel, the concentration camp survivor. This is that suffering outruns us, but we outlive it. Suffering will hurt you. Suffering will scar you. Evil will cut you. Nobody gets to heaven without scars, not even Jesus himself. Suffering outruns us, but you will outlive it. And this is where John Robert can pick up in two weeks this benediction at the end of this passage about God wiping away every tear from your eye. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more death. Suffering will not stand over you laughing. You will stand over it laughing because you are united to the one who has conquered it. You are his friend, you are his son, you are his daughter. You will laugh at it. That's what we're coming in the next couple of weeks in Revelation. You will outlive all of the bad stuff in this world because you are connected to the one who has already defeated it. Eli Wiesel is a Jew in the concentration camp. You might know his story in his book, Night. He says that there was a day where he saw a young child being hanged by the Nazis on the gallows. And he heard someone in the crowds. They made, the, they made all the people come and watch it. They, they heard, he heard a voice from the crowd say, Where is God now? Eli Wiesel said, I heard from within my heart an answer coming that said, There he is. There is God right there in the gallows, dying. Eli Wiesel saw unthinkable, unimaginable evil in the world and concluded there can't possibly be a good and powerful and gracious and merciful God. There can't possibly be any bigger reason for the atrocities that happened in that camp. And he cursed God. And it's so tragic because he was so close to the essence of the gospel. He said, there stands God in the gallows dead. He was right about that, just not in the way he meant it. Because the only God who exists is a God who walked up the gallows, who allowed himself to be hanged with his permission to redeem his people. God is not an observer of evil. He is not one who lectures you to be a tough guy and stick it out. He is a victim of it. He is a redeemer of it. This is the cross. There is no more climactic moment of evil than the creature murdering the agent of creation himself, Jesus. 
That's the pinnacle, my friends. It's worse than the Holocaust. It's worse than Stalin. For God the Son himself to be unjustly murdered. And Jesus says, don't you think that that was an accident? Don't you think my Father didn't have purposes in that? Don't you think he's not bringing redemption in that? It's your redemption that he was bringing. So he calls you to himself again tonight, whether you know him or you don't know him, to flee, flee the judgment, flee the chaos, and find refuge in him who knows what it is to suffer. The one, the only one who can redeem the stuff you go through. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. The stuff that I just encourage my friends to do is impossible apart from you lubricating the rusty, stuck gears of our heart with your grace and your mercy. Send your Holy Spirit now. Send him in the days to come. Keep sending him. That we might flee to you to wipe away the tears on our eyes, to know that you're not indifferent, to know that you don't look at us stoically, but you kneel down and you put your thumb on our face and you wipe away the pain and you redeem the sorrow and you vindicate yourself. Make this true in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.